whether there is any one correct style of a ritual, including communion and including baptism. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What do you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg. I want to talk a little bit about the topic of particularism today, because in looking at the schedule that goes out, really, to about a year from now, of planned topics for Walk the Earth, it looks like particularism is going to come very, very late. But I don't know if I can speak correctly about the question of the variations in ritual that I'm seeing in churches without dealing right up front with kind of a definition of the fallacy of particularism and what it means from a Christian perspective. Because taken to its extreme, it can become an issue where churches will divide or even literally go to war with each other over questions about the right way to do a baptism, the right way to conduct a marriage ceremony, so forth and so on. And in fact, in the Christian world today in the West, and in America in particular, we could certainly be accused of having gone to war with each other over the correct way of conducting a marriage ceremony, at least when you look at it from the perspective of who the participants are. But I want to look instead to the only two sacraments where there's a consensus across all of Western Christianity. There are more sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church, There are some Protestant denominations who have more than just a couple. But the one place where I think you can find unity among Protestants and Catholics alike are that there is a sacrament of communion and a sacrament of baptism. So this should be a source of, you know, sort of of a consistent view, a place where there's camaraderie. However, a lot of times what I've heard described and what I agree should be described as a secondary issue, the mode of performing sacraments, actually becomes a primary issue that can literally divide churches in two, split families, as a matter of fact. And so, when you go to one church consistently for more than a decade, you can, at times, see the problem of the sacraments always performed in only one way. Now, the church that I left, I really sought to resist this at all costs, because it strikes me that particularism is, in and of itself, very sinful. So we would always endeavor to explore different ways of taking communion. And we've even experienced for a mainline Protestant church more variety in the ways of conducting baptism than you might expect. You tend to see sort of United Methodists aligned behind the sprinkling method and a focus on infants, whereas you tend to find Southern Baptists aligned behind an immersion perspective and an emphasis on people who are teenagers, or at least at that mythical age of accountability. So it seems inevitable that if I was going to go visiting church to church and looking at a variety of denominations and trying to take in a variety of options in this process of changing churches, that on the question of sacraments, of ritual, I should be seeing a pretty good deal of variety. And I think that's true. I want to focus really on three primary levels of experience. One was a Baptist experience, and my focus there is primarily going to be on baptism, 
because we didn't visit during a Sunday that communion was served. That's an interesting contrast to Lutheranism, where communion has been served on every Sunday that we've attended that church. I don't necessarily want to say that communion is served every Sunday, because to make that claim true, I would have had to have attended every single Sunday at at least the same congregation, if not the same denomination. But that's the impression that I get. Likewise, the church that I want to speak to last, they've done communion every Sunday that I've attended, and I've even visited more than one church within that denomination, and communion was served on the Sunday we visited that different congregation as well. So it appears that in some churches, the communion is simply a part of the worship service. In Roman Catholicism, for example, in which you're attending isn't a Sunday worship service or a Saturday worship service, you're attending a Mass. Um, there's just a, a service and another set of rituals wrapped around the fact that the Eucharist, or communion, is central to the experience. So in some cases, I want to speak to differences in the way baptism is conducted. I've only witnessed one baptism while I've been on this church search, because baptism isn't an every weekly thing. It, it is aligned either with the birth of a new child in some denominations, or with uh, membership, or the completion of a confirmation process. So it's somewhat easy to look at it from this perspective. Your average Christian should be baptized once. I've known people who've been baptized a couple of times, but to be baptized more than that seems to me to be a mistake. I have a church friend, longtime church friend, who jokes that if she ever changes denominations as I am, one of the things she's going to insist upon is that no one forced her to get baptized again. Her perspective is, I had it done once, it took the first time. And I agree with her that for each individual believer, baptism is probably one and done, whereas communion, especially in some denominations, could be 52 times a year. So you'd expect you're going to run into, stumble upon a communion service a little bit more often. And that is consistent with the church search that we've done. We've seen communion done in more different ways than baptism, but I think that also makes sense as well. And just to let you know how committed I am to this, I actually had a fairly heated conversation at the church that I left when somebody there had decided that the right thing to do was to pick one way of doing it and to stick with it, that the, the way to glorify God was to do things in a particular way. My answer was, I think that all things related to our relationship with God, if that relationship is real, if it's vital, if it's vibrant, if it's living, if you believe in a living God, then you can't just be saying the same words every time. You can't just be doing the same ritual the same way every time. And it is okay if circumstances or situations force you to do something differently and creatively. I was on a men's retreat once, serving in the chapel. It is one of the mountaintop experiences that I'll refer to again, perhaps over on the Inappropriate Conversations show. Same feed, www.inappropriateconversations.org, is how you find both Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations. But that was a mountaintop experience for me because I literally spent two or three days solid uh, in prayer as much as possible, uh, praying with others, praying by myself, praying for the weekend, praying for the event praying for the guests who would come, and praying for the speakers and for others who were ministering to them at that time. And during one of the you know down moments, speaking to somebody more senior than me, somebody with more experience in Christianity than me, I asked him, I, you know, we're talking about communion, and I said, well, what would you do if you didn't have grape juice or wine? What would you do if you didn't have little pieces of bread or 
the crackers that you see in some churches, the wafers, the Jesus crackers is the sarcastic term. I've heard some of the younger people in my church describe it as. In fact, their objection was that they didn't want the worship committee of the church I left to switch us solely to Jesus crackers and grape juice every Sunday. They didn't think that one particular way was right. And this man agreed with my perspective. In fact, he said, you know what? Communion is so important to him that if the only things he had available to him, for whatever reason, was tortilla chips and salsa, that he would find a way to bless the tortilla chips and salsa and take communion Mexican style. And if that seems like an extreme, like something that's beyond the pale of, of absolute outrageous blasphemy, I would ask us to consider which one's the bigger blasphemy. Never taking communion again, because you just don't have the right kind of bread or the right kind of Jesus crackers, or remembering the Lord in any way you can with whatever you've got available. Because some Protestant denominations, in fact, I would guess most Protestant denominations, don't use wine. And yet the account we have in the Gospels of the first version of the Last Supper was wine. So in the Catholic Church, in the Lutheran Church, wine is used. That is certainly more authentic in one way or another. But you know what? I don't think I've gone to a communion service, despite hitting and visiting all these churches all year long. I haven't found one that actually has served legitimate unleavened bread. Most of them are some sort of loaf, uh, yeast-driven bread cut up in small pieces, or uh, crackers or wafers of some sort. So we've seen a lot of variety. And some churches are, are committed to the wine idea. Our visit to the Episcopal Church was wine. Visit to the Lutheran Church was wine. Were I eligible to take communion with my Roman Catholic friends, that would be wine. But there's not a single example in any of those cases where it's truly the kind of unleavened bread described in the New Testament. So if you want to go to a far extreme on the question of particularism, you're going to get to a place where you can get so particular that no one's done it right. In fact, you could get so particular that doing it right is in and of itself an impossibility. So let me start by defining my term, since I've thrown this out as a sin, because I am not a relativist. I, I've described myself on inappropriate conversations as being a political moderate. I would describe myself here on Walk the Earth as being conservative from the perspective of the Bible. I take the Bible seriously. I don't let tradition trump what the text actually says. So there are cases, there are situations in my life where I do think there is one right answer. I believe that there's truth, and I believe that there's truth with a capital T. But there's a difference between believing in truth and believing in particularism. So as a Christian, by faith, I can believe that we should take communion as often as communion is offered, that we should take it um, with the thoughts in our mind no matter how it's represented to us in the modern era, with the thoughts in our mind of us recreating and remembering Jesus as he told his original disciples, later apostles, to do at the Last Supper. So I believe in the truth of that. What I don't believe is that there's one right method. So let me quote Oz Guinness from his 1994 book, Fit Bodies, Fat Minds, When Evangelicals Don't Think and What to Do About It. Because I think he describes this pretty well. He's talking in a chapter called Let My People Think, in a book that is actually devoted entirely to trying to address the issue of American Christian anti-intellectualism. 
I'll say it again because I don't think that anything since 1994 has improved. If, if nothing else, things have gotten worse. American Christians are devoted to a strain of anti-intellectualism that is shocking, dangerous, and offensive. One of the things he addresses in this chapter, late in the book, on dealing with the problem of what it means to think Christianly, this idea of a Christian worldview, and he cites several misconceptions that create issues. Things like, is thinking Christianly just an individual activity? Or just a collegial activity? Or is it a purely human activity, where perhaps we don't trust the Holy Spirit to play a role? I might describe that as being one of the things that has made my final decision about a lot of churches. If I don't feel like the Holy Spirit is playing a role, in some cases, if I question whether the Holy Spirit is even acknowledged as real or permitted to play a role, well, that's kind of a deal breaker for me. But I want to speak to the one where he's talking about the idea that thinking Christianly is a form of uniformity, quoting Ganes. In other words, that if we all think Christianly, we will all think the same way. When this happens, the goal of thinking Christianly collapses into a frantic search for the one particular correct way of thinking or acting. The result is the fallacy of particularism, the uniformity of a particular Christianly correct way of thinking. Particularism, or the false ideal of uniformity, is understandable as a reaction to the anything-goes pluralism of the other extreme. There, thinking Christianly becomes synonymous with anything and everything that Christians think anyway. But particularism is equally extreme and equally fallacious because it denies two requirements of thinking Christianly that oppose all uniformity, the importance of diversity and the fact of human fallibility. That is Oz Ganesh from his Hourglass Books, paperback, Fit Bodies, Fat Minds, When Evangelicals Don't Think and What to Do About It. So the first assumption that I go into when I'm visiting a church and observing how they do ritual is not, is it true with a capital T? Because I'm not suffering from the fallacy of particularism. What it needs to be is moving and impactful to me, or at least not problematic. It becomes a problem if it's always done the same way, because then we begin to run into one of the other things that Ganesh cites in his book, a uniquely American Christian problem that I fear is spreading throughout the world, and that is replacing faith in God with faith in faith. We see this all too often, and I'm going to try to resist the temptation to take this Walk the Earth show in an inappropriate conversation's direction. I merged them with the most recent two episodes of each show talking about gender. I don't want to do it again here, but I'm tempted to just simply point out that you see a lot of Christians today who have a tremendous amount of faith in the Bible, but not a heck of a lot of faith in the Holy Spirit. And one of those is God incarnate, and the other one is a tool that we can use to help us understand God incarnate. If you're going to put your faith in one of those two things, you don't put it in Scripture, you don't put it in your personal faith. You certainly don't put it in your denomination. And heavens, you don't put it in your method of delivering sacraments. And yet it is not hard to find churches where if you wanted to go and join, and they knew that you were baptized as an infant, they would insist on pressuring you into getting baptized again. Or if the method that you chose of getting baptized, even if that happened when you were old enough, so to speak, they'd want that to be done again, because they disagreed with the method. 
And one of the churches that we visited, although it wasn't an issue and it didn't provide a distraction to me, I'm sure this would qualify in the area of baptism. Near the end of the worship service at the Baptist church we visited, a baptism was conducted. And it was a surprise to me. I've seen this conducted a handful of times in my lifetime, but always spread out over enough years that when it happens, it always sort of takes me um, a little by surprise. I'm used to seeing baptisms conducted in Roman Catholic churches, United Methodist churches, where the method is infant and the method is sprinkling, by and large. I'm less used to seeing baptisms of grown people, although that, that does happen. It's not at all unusual. But I'm not used to immersion. So when, when a, a screen parted and some lights came on behind the altar area and there was a large pool of water, a tub of water, and one of the elders of the church, I'm assuming it was an elder, gets into the water in, in his suit. So he's dressed up in a suit that he is now definitely going to have to dry clean with somebody who's dressed up in, in some sort of uh, formal wear that she has chosen for her baptism. Could have been robes, could have been a long formal dress. And she's wandered into the water as well, because this is going to be baptism by immersion. Now, I've seen baptism by immersion, even within the past 12 months, conducted in the United Methodist Church. So, again, I like churches where there's not just one right way of doing it. And I got the impression that, let's be honest, it's a Baptist church. This is probably the one right way of doing it. But it was interesting to see for the first time in a long time, face-to-face, because it literally is... Uh, the ritual, consistent with what John the Baptist might have described at the beginning of his ministry, of putting somebody completely under the water and bringing them out. So that sense of coming from an old way of living and thinking to a new way of living and thinking. And, you know, to me, that doesn't mean that that's the only way of doing it. I'm pretty comfortable with what Ezekiel describes in the uh, 26th or 36th chapter, one of those, where he talks about God being capable of sprinkling us clean of our idolatry. If God can use sprinkling to transform and represent the repentance of a nation, certainly a church can use sprinkling to transform and represent the repentance of an individual. Again, the problem that I had was not seeing baptism done in a way that I might not choose for myself given the choice. It was sitting in a church where I had the sense that this is the right way of doing it. Now, again, I'm not offering criticisms of the Baptist church we visited. It was a good visit. It was one of the better Sundays on our church search. But I've been in non-denominational churches in this same part of the state where I live in, where if you read the material, you certainly find that there's well, there are bigger problems than just this church does baptism differently than I do. I went to a Chris Rice concert a few years ago. And at that time, Chris was performing not in concert halls, but in churches. And he would go to churches that needed to have a large enough sanctuary or a large enough fellowship hall that there wouldn't be a, a crowding problem. That he would be disappointing as few fans as possible. I'm a big fan. I've driven more than an hour to see one of his shows, and twice I've gone to these church-type settings to see him perform. But in this one, biding our time, waiting for the concert to begin, I was looking at the different material that's in the pew in front of you. I probably should backtrack just a little bit because I may have listeners who've never really been in a church or if they were there weren't paying much attention. But typically in a church, what you see, at least a Protestant church, is you'll have pews and in front of the pew that you're facing, so the back, literally, of the row right in front of you, is a place where there's a shelf of sorts and there's a hymnal and maybe a Bible, maybe some places where you could jot down some notes 
the little envelopes where you could give a donation to the church if you wanted to do so in your name, perhaps for tax reasons or for other reasons. And sometimes you get in those seats, and I'm interested in the hymnal and a handful of favorite hymns, and I'm interested in seeing if other denominations or non-denominational churches, if they sing the same hymns that I do. I'm also interested in the translation of the Bible that they place in their pew. It gives you a hint of how they handle worship, and doesn't necessarily mean that they only have one version. But if they were to be a King James-only version church, they would probably have a King James-only Bible sitting in their pew area. But this one also had a handout. So if you were a new visitor, if you wanted to join the church, there was some reading material there, and being a little bit bored, and more than just a little curious, I was reading the material. And among the things that it said was, it listed a set of denominations that if you were coming to join their church from those denominations, you would need to be baptized again. This concept offends me. This is what I mean by particularism. Somebody who has joined a church, been confirmed in the faith, whether they started as a young child and went through a confirmation class, or whether they went through a new membership sort of class as an adult, if they have taken on baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's an offense to me that someone would ask them to get baptized all over again. Now, there are situations where I could see that. The line that you might draw, and it's a fuzzy line to a certain degree, between what is a denominational difference and what is a cult. You might want somebody coming out of a cult to get rebaptized, but I never accept the idea that Roman Catholicism is a cult. I never accept the idea that to jump from Baptist to Presbyterian to Methodism, that there's any cultic line being crossed there where the ritual would have to be performed from scratch. And that's sometimes what you see. So to the credit of this Baptist church on the question of baptism, I never got the impression, although I didn't ask, that me joining that church would require me to get baptized all over again. But if I did ask to get rebaptized for whatever reason, I could be 100% sure that the method would be immersion. So if we start answering the question of whether there's one type of ritual that's correct, I think I've gotten us to a point where we can look sort of at the fork in the road, that I have visited churches where their denomination believes there is one right method. And to the degree that I reject that idea, and that I've still looked at other denominations, among the other things I'm looking for is whether those denominations have that same outlook. Because I'm pretty well inclined to answer this question with a no. There isn't one right way of doing the ritual especially if the idea of a right way of doing the ritual stops people from performing the ritual at all. Jesus said, remember me this way. And what he meant was body and blood. I don't know that that means that you're not allowed to remember Jesus if you only have water and crackers. So we've gone through the communion ritual, as I mentioned many times. We've seen it done in the Episcopal Church, where it's as close as I've seen to Roman Catholicism in all of our visits. It's wine in a chalice, a shared chalice, um, the wafer, not really a Jesus cracker, but the wafer. I've seen other churches where it's literally that little teeny tiny square of, of cracker and grape juice. Sometimes the grape juice has been in a cup where you take the bread or the cracker and you drink from your own little individual cup. Or in some cases, it's been a shared chalice, but it's not everyone drinking it. It's a dipping scenario where you, intinction is what we call it. You take a piece of bread, you dip it in. You don't get your fingers in there, but you just dip the bread in there. And short of everybody having their own little cup to drink from, it's 
probably the best way to manage things from a hygiene perspective. One of the reactions my wife had at the Episcopal Church was her sense, as somebody who's, got, who's done a lot of study in microbiology, that there really isn't a wine you're going to find in a church that's strong enough to really make it okay for everybody to literally be drinking from the same cup. And here we were, a group of strangers to this congregation visiting for the first time, not really all that eager to be sharing from the same cup with a group of people that we'd never met before, and likely is not we're not going to be worshiping with again. I felt that for political reasons, for reasons of social justice, I needed to give churches and denominations like Episcopal and Church of Christ a very good look. But as I stand today, it seems unlikely that we're going to be revisiting any of the churches from those two denominations again. I may agree with their focus on social justice, but I also didn't necessarily see it manifest in worship the way I might have hoped. So that didn't happen. Of course, there is wine and there is wine. The Lutheran church we visited more than one time has little cuts of bread and individual cups, and in the individual cups is wine. And the first time we took communion at that church was a bit of a surprise, because again, for 15 years or longer, I've been doing communion through grape juice. Now, to go back to this idea of particularism, I don't think that means I've been doing communion wrong, and finally, for the first time in my life, I did it right. I don't think there's wrong and right to be had here. But it was a surprise. In my mind, understanding things about the differences in Protestant denominations, I knew, mentally, that this was going to be wine. And I could actually tell when I was looking at the tray with the little cups that there was a set of liquids that was a different color. There was probably grape juice for people who, for whatever reason, cannot take wine, maybe very young children. So I, I knew it, but it was different when you're actually taking communion and taking it in that manner. The funny thing is, is that for all the conflict in the church that I left over the fact that we ought to be doing communion different ways in different times, I've yet to visit a church that I felt has done communion differently in the time that we've been there. So if I've gone to a church more than once during this church search, the church has done communion consistently every time. I haven't seen the variability within a denomination yet. With one exception. The first time we went to the Disciples of Christ Church that we've been attending, probably more regularly now than any other, that church had what I consider to be the single most jarring communion experience I've ever had. It's one that totally challenges my attitude. I, I'm speaking here from a degree of confidence that there's no wrong way to serve communion that I don't necessarily disagree with my friend years ago in that chapel who said, if all you've got is chips and salsa, you take communion with chips and salsa. <laughs> but the first time you take communion with something other than grape juice or wine, you need to kind of be ready for it. So this is our first visit. It's a first visit, in fact, to the church without a church. And we're still going to church with this church in places that are not a sanctuary, per se, at least from time to time. But the very first communion experience, that very first Sunday, we're already getting used to the fact that the surroundings here are extremely unusual. We're in a we're in a shrine temple of sorts, a temporary location for a church that's between buildings. And everything's going well. I'm you know, really enjoying the music, enjoying the worship service. The message was great. And it came to the time of communion. And they have a an interesting ritual. It's a good ritual where while they're talking about you know, the actual gospel account of what happened in the Last Supper, they have someone pour the juice from a pitcher into a cup, one of the cups that will be used in serving communion, as a matter of fact. 
describing Jesus taking the wine at that certain point during the Last Supper and pouring it into a cup and saying, this is my blood. And so, in this case, I was looking at the liquid, going from the pitcher into the cup, and it was obvious to me that something was different. I could not put my finger on what it was. As I talked with my wife and daughter, I think one of them knew right off what, what was going to happen. Maybe my daughter. My wife and I were totally surprised, though. Now, they were taking communion through intinction, which I think I probably tipped my hand a little bit to say, yeah, that might be my favorite. It's not that I you know, have anything against everybody getting their own little shot glass of juice or wine. But to me, uh, taking a piece of bread, dipping it in the cup, that's got some good, good memories for me. That's a good way of taking communion. But in this case, I knew that this was not going to be the same kind of juice that I used to have at the church I grew up in. And I also didn't have any sense from looking at the liquid going from container to container that it was going to be wine either. But I wasn't ready for grape Kool-Aid. It was probably the single most jarring ritual surprise I've experienced in all of this church search. I went to the Episcopal Church expecting wafers. Wafers didn't surprise me at all. I went to, uh, certainly by the time I got to the Episcopal Church, I was expecting wine. The slight shock or a little surprise that I got from the Lutheran Church, well, it was consistent. All the other visits we made there was was wine as well. But in this case, it was grape Kool-Aid, and in retrospect, I should have seen it coming. If you've drunk a lot of Kool-Aid in your life, you know that that particular purple is a different color of purple than what you're going to get even from an artificially colored grape juice. It's just a different shade. And now that I know it, I knew it when I saw it. Wow, what a what an unexpected shock. And for the first time in really probably the first time in my life, I actually encountered the thought in my head that this might be the wrong way to take communion. I made a joke with my wife as we were leaving there that I, I knew what it was the second I tasted the juice-soaked bread. And I was tempted to make a comment to her and say, hey, you know, that was Kool-Aid. But then I was kind of afraid that the 1970s and 80s advertisement would come to life and the big giant Kool-Aid guy would break through the wall of the temple and, hey, Kool-Aid! You know, it was, it was that big of a surprise. We found out later, having gone to the church a couple more times and talked with the pastor, it was a surprise to him, too. And it was something that he had taken advantage of the opportunity to say, hey, let's not do this again. We're really throwing off the visitors. Which, again, makes me uncomfortable, because on the one hand, I don't want to have a particular perspective. Again, let me make very clear. If there was no juice available, and your choice was Kool-Aid or water, I'm good with either one of those two things. It's fine. Taking communion, remembering Jesus that way, that aspect of the ritual is much more important than how the ritual is performed. But I also will restate that one of the biggest arguments, one of the biggest conflicts, somebody actually leaving the church over it, was a discussion in the church that I left over whether or not it was appropriate to serve communion in different ways. That there was something faithless, perhaps, about making changes in the way we did it. And when I spoke to those people about the sin of particularism, they looked at me like I had two heads. They didn't know what I was saying. They didn't understand but I don't believe that anywhere outside of perhaps Roman Catholicism, there is an argument to be made that Christian experience should be locked in and regimented in that manner. It's easier to remember Jesus if you're not focused solely on the methodology. In other words, the very secular notion that the Lord works in mysterious ways 
frankly, ought to extend all the way through our rituals as well, that the only wrong thing to do is nothing at all. So we visited several churches. Off the top of my head, I would say a dozen since May. And from all those churches that we've attended, there have been different ways of doing things, subtle variations, and I don't have any problem whatsoever with that. So I don't think there's one right way to conduct a sacrament. One of the things we did with the Disciples of Christ Church, the one that initially served as Kool-Aid and has since served as grape juice, is we, we wanted to see what it would be like if the church that we're visiting now actually built a new building and created a new sanctuary and migrated into the sanctuary. Because one of the things that I've you know said many times in the past was that I'm not sure I see much value in the bulletin. To me, the idea of handing everyone a piece of paper and saying, all right, you're to worship service. This is exactly what we expect of you. This is when to sit. This is when to stand. Here are the songs. Here are the scriptures. I'm okay if the worship service comes to me. And if there's going to be a projector and a screen and you can put the words up on a screen, there really isn't that much advantage to having hymns printed in a hymnal. Now, I'm quite sure that the church that we visited this week has a hymnal. They're just between buildings, so those have all been stowed away somewhere. So a couple of weeks ago, we were very curious to say, hey, what does this particular denomination look like if you worshipped with them with a congregation that didn't have this interruption of facilities that was in the same sanctuary that they'd been in for years? None of this is totally new to me, of course. My older sister was married in this denomination. On occasions when we would visit her and go to her church, it would be this denomination. The church that I attended occasionally while I was at university was this denomination. But that's many years ago. So I felt like I needed to see right now what in the area that I live in would be the experience of worship if this church that doesn't have a church did. What would their order of worship look like? If they had a bulletin, what would it read like? And most important to me, let's take a look at that hymnal. You know, Because it's probably the same denomination having the same hymnal. So we went to visit a different church, the same denomination, and went to their building. And it gave me an opportunity to witness the ritual performed their way. And it made me feel pretty good to see that for whatever reason, these two churches in the same denomination, a few miles of each other, were performing the rituals differently. That's a good thing. Now, the reason might be strictly born out of necessity. If you've got pews and you've got ushers, and you've got ornate, you know, you got all the little plastic cups you need, if you've got all those materials, and you choose to use them, you probably can serve communion in the pews by having the ushers pass around the tray of bread pieces, and pass around the cups with the juice in it, and that is what we experienced. To me, the most interesting thing was that we were experiencing something different, rather than the method of coming forward and, and doing intention. The communion was brought to you. This is consistent with the megachurch that we went to as well. But again, if you're trying to serve communion to several hundred people as efficiently as possible, it may make more sense to do that in a way where you have people performing a role of usher and delivering those elements as efficiently as possible. So that could just be the reality of the size of sanctuary, the size of congregation. So I wanted to see if there was going to be something jarringly different. And in one sense, there was not. You could tell this was the same denomination. 
you could see how it might translate into a traditional sanctuary and a traditional order of worship, bulletin included. But the differences that were there were encouraging because it seemed to speak of a denomination that has a very open mind and a very open idea. That if you wanted to join them and get baptized or get rebaptized and wanted to be immersed, they could accommodate that. I also get the impression, although I haven't asked, that if you were joining them and you had never been baptized and you wanted to be baptized via sprinkling or um, some other method, pouring is another method, that that would be acceptable too. To me, that's the right answer. Not placing the type of ritual above the meaning and the significance of the ritual itself to both the individual worshiper and the Lord. If and as you are led, please join me in prayer. Jesus, you have given us clear instructions on multiple things that you would like us to do in worshiping you. The two in particular that I've always heard through scripture are baptism and communion. Lord, help us to remember at all times that you are speaking not just to a group of a few dozen people who are following you or to the Jewish people that was primarily the focus of your ministry. But you believed, Lord Jesus, you were speaking to the entire world. You knew that Philip was going to be encountering an Ethiopian and baptize him with whatever water was available at the side of the road. Lord, you knew that Gentiles were going to be receiving not just baptism with water, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that at the moment that Peter witnessed that himself face to face for the first time, was going to completely change his understanding of how deep your love is and how broad your vision for the world is. Lord, help us. Help us to have that same perspective that as long as people are following the leading of your Holy Spirit, worshiping you genuinely in, in spirit and in truth, that there is no wrong way. And Lord, where there is a wrong way, where the spirit is false, where the guidelines and the standards are human in origin, where a particular church puts themselves as the centerpiece rather than you, Jesus. Call that to my attention as clearly as you did years ago when I was waiting for a Christian rock singer to perform a concert. Remind me, as often as need be, where you're okay <laughs> and where you'd prefer that we set ourselves aside because sometimes, Lord, we get in the way of worshiping you genuinely. In your holy name we pray. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. So but water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. You shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions.
Kevin McLeod. Our next question will be, whether Old Church, pre-Reformation Church, manages ritual better than church today in more modern or contemporary settings. Thanks for listening.